0: Hello, and welcome back to 202 Decades. This episode serves as a bridge between the Greeks and the Romans. It's easy to silo history into the history of Rome, or the history of the Greeks, but reality isn't so simple. Events in one area don't preclude the movement of history in another area. While Alexander the Great swept through Anatolia, Syria, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia, and beyond, The Romans were busy fighting the Samnites, and securing control over central Italy. In the wake left behind by Alexander's tsunami, the Diadochi successors vied with one another for the next several decades. One of these successors, a relative of Alexander, was named Pyrrhus of Epirus. As I mentioned in the last episode, Epirus was an area of northwest Greece, just across the Adriatic Sea from the heel of Italy. Pyrrhus was born in 319 in the post-Alexander Greek world. His father was Iacades of Epirus, and his mother was Phthea from Thessaly. Pyrrhus' father was a cousin of Alexander's mother, Olympias, making him a second cousin of Alexander. At Pyrrhus' birth, the empire of Alexander hung together only by a thread. Alexander had not left behind an heir. The initial plan was for Perdiccas to rule as regent until Roxana, Alexander's pregnant wife, gave birth. However, the generals, who now effectively ruled large sections of the empire, began to get a taste for independence. Roxana gave birth to a son, Alexander IV, but he and Roxana were soon poisoned and died. It would be up to the generals to fight it out for supremacy. The first attempt to consolidate power was made by Perdiccas, When he attempted to marry Alexander's sister, and first marched toward Anatolia to attack Antigonus, then instead headed south to attack Ptolemy in Egypt. But the invasion of Egypt stalled out, and his own troops murdered him. One less player on the board. By 315, Antigonus had gained control of nearly all of Alexander's empire, save for Macedonia, which was ruled by Cassander, Thrace, ruled by Lysimachus, and Egypt, ruled by Ptolemy. These other powers began to fear Antigonus' immense power and demanded he hand over some provinces to them and keep a balance between them. Obviously, Antigonus refused. The other powers allied against Antigonus, and war began. Antigonus struck at Ptolemy's holdings in Syria. Next, he moved toward Greece, leaving his son Demetrius behind to control Syria and Palestine. Ptolemy and a general named Seleucus attacked Demetrius in the Battle of Gaza and were victorious. Seleucus headed east and secured control of Babylon. From there, Seleucus quickly gained dominion over the remainder of the east of the empire, Persia, Parthia, Bactria, along with Mesopotamia. Antigonus was suddenly in trouble. He sent an army under his son to keep trying to gain control of Greece, but he personally led an army to fight Seleucus, who had stolen a huge amount of territory up from under him. But Antigonus failed at retaking the east and by 309, he had to give it up to Seleucus. His son Demetrius was now having more success in Greece, and in 307, he captured Athens and kicked out Cassander's governor. Riding this wave of success, Demetrius invaded Cyprus and defeated Ptolemy's fleet. Antigonus tried to link up with his son's ships in an attack on Egypt, but storms kept the fleet away, and the expedition was called off. Returning their attention to Greece, Demetrius attacked Cassander again and invaded Thessaly, Cassander sued for peace, but the appeals were rejected. Fierce battles between the two took place in Thessaly. Meanwhile, the other powers were again growing wary of Antigonus and his son's power. Lysimachus attacked Anatolia unprovoked, forcing Demetrius to peel his attention away from Greece. Demetrius sent his army to help his father, but Lysimachus, with Cassander's help, was able to overrun much of western Anatolia. In 301, though, they were cut off by Antigonus and Demetrius at Ipsus. The Antigonids looked ready to destroy their enemies in the west, when, at the crucial moment, Seleucus arrived with his army, and the alliance crushed Antigonus and Demetrius. Antigonus was killed in the battle, and Demetrius fled with what was left of his army. Anatolia was now split up between Lysimachus and Seleucus. This battle of Ipsus marked a settling of the map. Ptolemy held Egypt and Palestine, Seleucus held the east and eastern Anatolia, Lysimachus held western Anatolia and Thrace, and Cassander held Macedonia. Cassander ruled from Macedonia and controlled much of Greece. He established the prominent city of Thessalonica and rebuilt the ruined city of Thebes. He died in 297, probably from heart failure. His dynasty wouldn't last long after his death. Demetrius, Antigonus's son, had retired to Ephesus after the Battle of Ipsus, with his reputation in Tatters. But this wouldn't last. He was soon reconciled with Seleucus, and again gained possession of Athens. In 294, Demetrius went north, murdered Cassander's son, and set himself up as king of Macedonia. Back to Pyrrhus. At the age of 11, Pyrrhus was placed on the throne of Epirus by the invading Illyrians. A few years later, he traveled to a wedding in Illyria and, while he was away, the people of his kingdom rebelled and chose a new king. Pyrrhus went into exile, spending the next few years hopping around the Hellenic world. He joined up with the Antigonids. Demetrius was his brother-in-law. Antigonus was impressed with the young man and supposedly said Pyrrhus would become the greatest general of his time if he lived long enough. Pyrrhus even fought in the Battle of Ipsus likely stationed near Demetrius on the prestigious right wing. In 298, Pyrrhus was sent to Alexandria as a hostage of Ptolemy in part of a peace agreement between Demetrius and the Egyptian ruler. Ptolemy was also impressed with the young man, and when Cassander died in 297, he gave Pyrrhus men and funds to help restore him to be king of Epirus once again. When Pyrrhus returned to Epirus, not wanting to start a war, he agreed to a joint rule with the new king. As you might expect, the two instantly began plotting against each other, and Pyrrhus got the better of his foe, having him murdered at a dinner party. Finally, Pyrrhus was back, as sole ruler of his kingdom. For the next several years, Pyrrhus made small jabs at his neighbor Demetrius, looking for an opening. They might have been relatives, but expansion into Demetrius's territory was Pyrrhus' only clear path to expansion. In 292, Pyrrhus invaded Thessaly while Demetrius besieged Thebes. When Demetrius approached, though, Pyrrhus retreated with his smaller force before a battle could take place. Three years later, Demetrius invaded the Aetolian League, a group of cities in south central Greece just across the Gulf of Corinth from the Peloponnese. The League were allies of Pyrrhus, and he came to their aid. Demetrius sent an army to stop the Epirotes but his army and Pyrrhus' marched past each other, having taken parallel paths through the mountains. A skirmish took place when the Epirotes ran into Demetrius's rear guard, but it was inconsequential and both sides went home. Later that year, Demetrius became very ill. Pyrrhus learned of this and used the opportunity to invade Macedonia. He faced no resistance and made rapid gains until Demetrius had recovered enough to respond with a large force, pushing Pyrrhus out again. In 288, Demetrius now invaded Asia Minor, trying to recover that territory lost by his father a decade before. The other Greek kingdoms asked Pyrrhus for his help, teaming up against Macedon. Lysimachus attacked from Thrace into northern Macedonia, Ptolemy attacked the coasts of Greece by sea and Pyrrhus attacked southern Macedonia. Pyrrhus' army had a lot of success initially. Demetrius's army was winning too over in Anatolia, but when they heard their home was being invaded, they mutinied and demanded to return home. They were so tired of his poor rule and grandiose plans that when they finally encountered the Epirote army, they abandoned Demetrius and went over to Pyrrhus' side. With Demetrius away and the other kingdoms at war with him, Athens had taken the chance to revolt against Demetrius. He had to gather a new army, with which he besieged Athens. The Athenians called upon Pyrrhus' help, and he marched south, ready to spoil Demetrius' plans again. The son of Antigonus was forced to lift his siege. The Athenians were free from Demetrius' rule. Pyrrhus was welcomed into the city, though without his army. He was to be their guest, but not their ruler. In thanks, the Athenians made a statue of him and threw celebrations for him. The next year, Demetrius tried again to invade Asia. I guess he had grown tired of trying to balance the unruly cities of Greece. Lysimachus asked Pyrrhus to put pressure on Demetrius in Macedonia, and again Pyrrhus helped out. Pyrrhus quickly overcame Demetrius's son and captured Thessaly. Pyrrhus's rule was at its height. He controlled Epirus, Thessaly, and half of Macedonia. The balance of power in the Diadochi was always fickle, though. Demetrius was soundly defeated by Seleucus in 285. Without the threat of Demetrius, the pressure was off Lysimachus, who shared control of Macedonia with Pyrrhus. Lysimachus used the opportunity to isolate Pyrrhus from his allies. Next, he invaded and took the rest of Macedonia. The Thracian invaded Epirus too and plundered the land, but didn't make any lasting conquests there. Everyone knew Pyrrhus was a good general. His problem, though, was that he never had an army of equal size or quality compared to his rivals. He only had a small kingdom of Epirus to draw from. His opportunity for expansion in Greece seemed to be closing. He needed a new way to get a larger army and funding. With his kingdom on the shores of the sea, just across the water from Italy, it was natural for his mind to set upon the peninsula as a target for expansion. His army may not have been a match for the larger players of the East, but surely he could defeat the simple barbarians of Italy. When he received a call for aid in 282, he jumped at the chance. Two years later, though, as he looked out at the Roman army for the first time, carefully constructing their fortified camp and lining up in their heavy armor, I wonder if he began to have any doubts. We will give the full story of Rome's expansion in the next episode. Jumping ahead to 282 BC, here's where the Romans stood. Rome had just won the third in a series of wars against the Samnites for control of central Italy. Their rule now extended across the Italian peninsula from sea to shining sea. Now, their expansion was aimed south, toward the rich Greek cities of the boot of Italy and Magna Graecia many of the cities saw that joining rome peacefully would be much nicer than joining after a quarter of the city was killed and a quarter enslaved others though were either strong enough to stay independent or they had close alliances with the powers of mainland greece keeping the romans from getting too greedy one of these cities was tarentum a greek colony located in the arch of the italian boot it was founded in 706 as a colony of sparta and over the years, it became the largest and most influential Greek city in the area. In 282 BC, a few Roman warships accidentally entered the Bay of Tarentum. This caused an outrage in the city since, according to the treaty they had signed with Rome, the Bay of Tarentum was off-limits to them. The democratic leadership of Tarentum may have overreacted a little bit. They sent out their navy and sank the Roman ships, The fear for them was that, as Rome had done in other Greek cities she controlled, Rome would intervene in her local politics and favor the oligarchs over the Democrats. They probably shouldn't have poked the bear, though. Rome sent ambassadors to investigate the situation, but they were insulted and sent away. Rome now declared war on Tarentum. The Greek city secured the aid of the Samnites and other small Italic tribes, but they knew their situation was hopeless without a bigger ally. This is when Tarentum sought help from abroad. When Pyrrhus agreed to help, he also asked for support in this expedition, and Antiochus I of the Seleucid Empire lent him money, Antigonus II of the Macedonian Kingdom lent him ships, and Ptolemy II lent him five thousand infantry and two thousand cavalry. Eager to begin the war, Pyrrhus departed from Epirus to cross the straits between his kingdom and Italy in the dead of winter. The waters of the Adriatic here were notorious for their rough winter conditions. No one crossed in winter, but Pyrrhus did, mostly. He lost many men and ships in the crossing. His army, composed of 25,000 infantry, 3,000 cavalry, and 20 war elephants, landed and marched to Tarentum. As a side note, This has to be the first time any elephant walked in Italy since the mammoths there died out at the end of the Stone Age, right? Anyway, when Pyrrhus and his army reached Tarentum, they quickly set up shop and prepared themselves for a fight. Whatever hope the Tarentines felt when they saw the army of fellow Greeks arriving to save them from the Romans, it was quickly lost when the army was inside the city. Before long, it was clear the man they had invited in was not a savior, but a new master. See, from the very start, Pyrrhus became frustrated that the Tarentines were overly eager to let him do the fighting while they enjoyed their leisure. They had to have some skin in the game. He forced the men to perform military drills and drafted them into his army. He closed the gymnasia and the theater and banned them from holding banquets. Plutarch writes, Many therefore left the city, since they were not accustomed to being under orders, and called it servitude not to live as they pleased. When word reached the Romans that a relative of Alexander had arrived in Tarentum with a Greek army, they must have felt a little nervous. They had never faced one of the Hellenistic armies in battle, and everyone knew at the time that these were the strongest armies in the world, the armies that had conquered Persia. The Romans had had a difficult enough time with the hill tribes of Italy. If the Romans were nervous, though, they didn't or couldn't show it. One of the consuls for the year 280 was Publius Lavinus. He led his army south, into Lucania, the region just west of Tarentum. Lavinus wanted to meet the Greek army as far from Rome as possible. First, to attempt to scare Pyrrhus, and second, to give Rome time to prepare in case he lost. As the Romans neared, Pyrrhus did not have all his allies assembled yet, but he marched out to face the Romans and stall their progress. This first battle was at Heraclea. The two sides stood across from each other with the river Cirrus between them. The Romans attacked first, not wanting to wait long enough for Pyrrhus' allies to arrive. The Roman cavalry crossed the river upstream and attacked the men guarding the crossing, causing them to flee the rest of the Roman army began to cross. Seeing his guards attacked, Pyrrhus assembled his infantry into their phalanxes and marched them forward. The Romans were pelted by arrows and slingshots, while 20,000 Sarissa spear points came slowly closer and closer. Imagine staring down an incoming wood chipper and you'll have some idea. The two sides met with a crash of iron on iron. The weight of the deep lines of the phalanxes pressing on their foes was usually enough to scatter any enemy. The Romans, though, with their heavy shield and armor and their iron discipline, held their ground. The sources say that the Greek phalanxes pushed seven times but could not break the legions. The legions, in turn, pushed seven times but could not make any headway against the phalanx. The Roman cavalry began to gain the upper hand and started threatening the flanks of the phalanx. Pyrrhus now used the card he had held in reserve up to this point, his elephants. These massive beasts marched forward in their armor. They were unlike anything the Romans, or their horses, had seen before, and the cavalry was spooked and fled. With the infantry still locked in battle, Pyrrhus' own cavalry now had the field to themselves, and they took the opportunity to hit the Romans in the flanks. The tired Roman infantry began to break, and soon the whole army fled back across the river. Pyrrhus had won. The Roman army was in full retreat. On the battlefield lay at least 7,000 dead Romans, but beside them were at least 4,000 dead Greek soldiers. The victory had been costly for Pyrrhus. Still, a victory is a victory, right? Pyrrhus's answer to that question would change after the next battle against the Romans. After the battle, Pierce's army marched northwest up the Italian peninsula toward Rome. On the way, they captured several cities and looted the region of Latium. Two days' march south of Rome, though, he stopped. Facing him there was the other consular army, under the command of Tiberius Cornucanius. He considered fighting, but doubted he had enough men with him to both win the battle and capture Rome. And he knew that the army he had just defeated was surely regrouping to his rear. He turned and returned to Tarentum for the winter. Both sides used the season to prepare for the next battle. When spring arrived, Pyrrhus invaded Apulia, the heel of Italy, and captured much of the country. After his victory at Heraclea, Pyrrhus had been able to secure the alliance of several Italic tribes, and his army was larger now. The Romans also had gathered their allies. They went out to meet the Greeks and approached Pyrrhus' army near the city of Asculum. This time, each side had around 40,000 infantry and around 8,000 cavalry. This was going to be a much larger battle, and Pyrrhus still had most of his war elephants. The Romans had learned from their last encounter with the beasts, and now had a plan to deal with the elephants. Fool me once, shame on you, and the Romans wouldn't be fooled twice. This time, with their army, they reportedly brought 300 chariots equipped with archers, fire-engulfed hooks, and grappling hooks. The plan this time was to either spook the elephants with the chariots, or, if that failed, wrap up their legs and incapacitate them. Pyrrhus briefly rested his army and then marched out to meet the Romans. The two sides met in a brutal battle that, according to Plutarch, lasted two full days. Again, neither the phalanxes nor the legions could make any headway, and the cavalry was evenly matched. Pyrrhus tried to use his elephants again to turn the tide, but they were neutralized by the chariots and had to be withdrawn. In the end, though, the Romans were slowly driven back. Exhausted, the Greeks couldn't chase. The Romans had lost 6,000 men and the Greeks 3,500. Pyrrhus had won again, barely, and had suffered greatly. After the battle, Pyrrhus was congratulated for the victory, and he was reported to have said, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. Although he had won, he had lost many of his generals and the majority of his elite soldiers in the two battles. Pyrrhic victories indeed. Replenishing his forces wouldn't be easy. The Romans, on the other hand, replenished their losses as if from a fountain gushing forth indoors. Pyrrhus now realized winning a war against the Romans was not going to happen for him. Not convenient for his plans, but not the end of the world either. See, conquering Sicily was his bigger goal. Defeating the Romans was merely an end to secure his supply lines. Now, though, he would have to go without and just conquer Sicily first. Pyrrhus and his army soon departed for Sicily. At the time, the island was split between Greek cities on the east and south, and Carthaginians in the west. Initially, he was successful in conquering the holdings of Carthage, but his campaign ground to a halt. His army besieged the last Carthaginian city on the island, Lilybaeum, tucked on the westernmost point of Sicily, but they failed to capture it. Meanwhile, just as it happened with his stay in Tarentum, the Greeks of Sicily quickly tired of Pyrrhus' despotism. Pyrrhus needed more oarsmen to man his ships to successfully besiege the Carthaginian holdout, so he captured and impressed many Greeks into serving aboard his ships. Resistance against Pyrrhus began in the city of Syracuse. Pyrrhus purged what enemies he could find, but it was not enough. The situation in Sicily was falling out of his hands. The Carthaginians were reinforcing and capturing territory, and the Greeks no longer were willing to abide him, let alone help him. Using the excuse of a request for help from some of the Samnites, who were once again being subdued by the Romans, he abandoned Sicily and returned to Italy. He had failed to establish a secure base in Italy, and had failed to subdue Sicily. It was back to square one for Pyrrhus. A final battle between Pyrrhus and the Romans took place in Campania at Maleventum in 275 BC. Details of this battle are lacking, as the sources only give a passing mention of it. In this third battle, the Romans used what they had learned in the previous engagements and were able to secure a victory. One factor the sources are consistent on is that they drove off one of the war elephants, and it turned and crashed through the Greek lines. Pyrrhus fled with the remnants of his army. The Romans were able to capture eight of the elephants for themselves and bring them back to Rome. In celebration, the Romans renamed the city from Maleventum, the place of bad events, to Beneventum, the place of good events. Pyrrhus had had enough of Italy, He fled back to Epirus, abandoning all his conquests save for Tarentum. To wrap up the story of poor Pyrrhus of Epirus, he couldn't lay down his sword, and three years later found himself putting down a revolt in Argos as he attempted to conquer the Peloponnese. Sometimes in life, you need a hard blow to the head to knock you to your senses, but when a woman in Argos threw a tile at Pyrrhus from the roof above, the hard blow to the head simply killed him. With its protector dead, Tarentum surrendered at last to the Romans. In its first encounter with the East, Rome had stood strong. The outside world was now waking up to the growing strength of the Romans. While the Greek generals fought to be the successor to Alexander's empire, it was the rising Romans who would conquer them all. It was only under them that Macedonia, Egypt, Anatolia, and Syria would be united. When it came to empires, the Romans were the true successors to Alexander's greatness. The story of Pyrrhus straddles the stories of the Hellenic world and the rise of Rome. Next time, we jump across the Adriatic and finally put both feet on the Italian peninsula. We will watch as Rome expands from settlement to kingdom to republic to empire. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please leave a rating and a review. You can also follow the series on Twitter at 202Decades. See you next time.